Amidst the unspeakable humanitarian and economic crisis caused by the seemingly intractable Syrian civil war, neighboring Israel walks a tightrope, seeking to halt Iranian entrenchment dangerously close to its borders while averting a war that nobody wants. Welcome to the gray zone of the Middle East. Hello, and welcome to Decision Points. This season, we are exploring a series of policy dilemmas in Israel's history and its present, tough calls that require courageous leadership, significant sacrifice, creative thinking, and robust bilateral cooperation with regional and international partners. My name is David Makovsky, the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow and Director of the Project on Arab-Israel Relations at the Washington Institute. And I'm excited to go on this journey examining Israel's tough policy decisions with you. Syria has been an implacable foe of Israel since it attacked Israel on the day of its birth in 1948. There were three wars between these countries during the first 25 years of Israel's existence. First in 1948, then in 1967, and finally in 1973. As we pointed out in Season 2, there were some hopeful moments in the 1990s when Syrian peace with Israel seemed imaginable. Following the 1991 Madrid conference, as Damascus came face to face with the reality that its patron, the Soviet Union, has collapsed. Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and Syrian President Hafez Assad engaged in high-level negotiations. However, these negotiations ultimately fell apart due to a dispute over the Golan Heights. Any lingering hopes of a Syrian-Israeli peace were extinguished as talks collapsed in the late 90s and at the start of 2000. As those talks failed, Syria became more dependent on Iran for its future. Syria's increased dependency on Iran coincided with the change in Syrian leadership. Hafez Assad, who ruled with an iron fist, had been at the helm for decades. Upon his death in 2000, the presidency moved to his inexperienced son, an ophthalmologist with little political or military training. Bashar was faced with his greatest challenge in 2011 when pro-democracy protests, commonly known as the Arab Spring, erupted across the Middle East and North Africa. In Syria, anti-government protests began in the southern city of Dera in March 2011. Bashar, a member of the minority Alawite Shia sect, spread a message amongst fellow Alawites that they were in danger of a Sunni takeover. Security forces responded to the demonstrations with ruthless violence and the use of chemical weapons against protesters. Yet by July, hundreds of thousands of Syrians had taken to the streets, demanding Assad step down. This domestic instability resulted in one of the bloodiest civil wars in the modern Middle East. It is estimated that nearly 600,000 Syrians have died in this conflict. Over 10 million Syrians are displaced. By 2015, the situation looked bleak for Assad. This is because the U.S. had begun supporting Syrian rebel groups fighting against Assad, and the newly formed ISIS had gained control of large areas of eastern Syria. Ultimately, Russia decided to intervene in support of Assad. 
For most of the war, a number of Western and Arab countries backed the Syrian opposition and its demand that Assad leave office. But with Russia joining the war on the side of the Syrian leader, it appears that he'll be staying, at least for now. Today, Russian airplanes control the skies. Iranian-backed terrorist group Hezbollah has bolstered Syrian forces on the ground for years, and now they are joined by Iranian-backed Shia Popular Mobilization Units, known as PMUs. And of course, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, the backbone of the regime, are in Syria. Iran's presence in Syria is deeply worrisome for its neighbor Israel, which has long seen the Islamic Republic as its most dire existential threat. Since the Islamic Revolution of 1979, Iran has vehemently opposed the state of Israel, deeming it an enemy of Islam. Hezbollah, which was created in the wake of Israel's 1982 invasion of southern Lebanon, is also ideologically opposed to Israel and actively seeks its destruction. Iran provides weapons, funding, and training for Hezbollah's militias fighting on behalf of Assad. Israel learned from Lebanon, if you wait until the Iranian forces are already entrenched, it's too late. Iranian command centers have been set up in Syria, and thousands of Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, known as the IRGC, have been brought in to fight for Assad. And more, a vast array of missile installations and Iranian military supervision poses a major threat not only for northern Israel, but Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, which are in range of Iranian missiles. I should add that there's also a precision guided munitions program in Syria. We will discuss it in a future podcast episode focusing on Lebanon. Iranian entrenchment in Syria threatens Israel's security territory and citizens. Recognizing it has little ability to affect the outcome of the Syrian conflict, Israel's objective is clear, minimizing and possibly eliminating Iran's entrenchment in Syria all while avoiding a direct confrontation with Iran. This is called MABAM, the Hebrew acronym for Campaign Between the Wars, or Hamaracha Bena Milchamot. But in English, we just call it the Gray Zone. Seeking to avoid war, Israel doesn't send troops on the ground. Rather, Israel has restricted its intervention thus to airstrikes on Syrian and Iranian military installations. This includes depots, where Iran is moving weapons from Iran to Hezbollah in Lebanon, which is called the Land Bridge. All these Israeli airstrikes are tacitly tolerated by Russia and contingent on deconfliction of air and naval forces. Deconfliction means that Israel notifies Russia just moments before it is about to strike to ensure that its planes do not crash into each other. Any Israeli intervention Syria is fraught with danger. Each strike risks conflict escalation with Iran and risks mistaken Russian casualties. The Israelis' reply to the 20 rockets fired at them was airstrikes on around 70 different targets. We struck command and control facilities, intelligence uh, structures uh, of different uh, sorts, ammunition depots, and military hardware. And we also made sure to strike the specific launcher that had fired the 20 rockets towards Israel. To discuss this further, we are joined by an all-star panel. We are delighted to be joined by Ambassador Jim Jeffrey, who has served as Secretary of State Special Representative for Syria. He is formerly the U.S. Ambassador to Iraq, 
Turkey, Albania, and the Deputy National Security Advisor of the United States. He's now the Chair of Middle East Studies at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Asaf Orion is a Senior Fellow at the Tel Aviv-based Israel Institute for National Security Studies. He was a Brigadier General in the Israel Defense Forces, where he focused on a range of issues, including strategic planning. Ola Al-Rafai, a native of Syria, is a fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policies Program on Arab Politics. She holds a master's degree in Middle East Studies from Harvard University and has written about the origins of the Iranian-Syrian relationship. So, Asaf, I'd like to begin with you. Some say you could sum up Israel's approach to Syria by saying Israel did not like the book in Lebanon and therefore doesn't want to see the movie in Syria. In other words, Israel learned a lesson that ignoring Hezbollah's entrenchment in Lebanon was costly. Therefore, Israel wants to act in Syria before Iran can become entrenched there. Is that depiction accurate? So, in one word, yes, the Syria film is a sequel of Hezbollah's novel from the same press and studio uh, company. The longer uh, context is that the threats on Israel from Lebanon and Syria are chapters taken from the same book, The Iranian Art of War, and additional chapters are Yemen and Iraq, threatening its neighbors or their neighbors and the U.S. troops. Uh, This art of war is a gray zone warfare. Uh, is running an enterprise for indirect proxy warfare. Uh, The main idea there is avoiding a direct war between Iran and its enemies fought from its uh, territory by its own forces. Hezbollah, in this case, is the flagship, the oldest and best model, the most advanced model of uh, the proxy warfare enterprise. And Israel has been fighting it since its inception in the early 80s. And the calm that we see along the blue line is the longest we had ever between Israel and Lebanon. And it's based on a very strong mutual deterrence. Like both sides understand the cost of war and still they can stumble into it as they did. Uh, Since the civil war in Syria, Iran began promoting the same strategy in Syria itself, but it uh, found Israel uh, aware, awakened, more experienced and and knowledgeable about the emergence and proactively uh, acting to stop it in its own backyard. While Iran uh, is fighting a long long way from uh, home, and that's a disadvantage. Okay. Jim, over to you. You were the American coordinator on Syria. And I'd like to know how you saw Israel's gray zone policy. I saw it as complementary, but it took a while to get there. And uh, I'd like to take a step back and first of all say, Asaf summed up brilliantly the situation in the whole region today. First of all, it is a war. And it's important to understand the two sides. On one side, there is Iran, an Iran that controls what goes on in the Middle East for its greater glory either defensive or offensive, either religious or ideological, or simply an expanded view of their own security. That is what they're out to do. Now, the thing about Syria, and that gets us to the Israelis, is Syria is the most important for several reasons. One is, 
it's in the center of the Middle East. In a way, Yemen, uh, Lebanon, and Iraq are not. Two, it is a center of the Arab world. Thirdly, unlike Lebanon, if Iran continues to dig in in Syria, the mutual deterrence with Hezbollah in southern Lebanon does not exist. Look at how big Syria is. Look at how small Lebanon is. Look at how large the Syrian army, once it reconstitutes itself, was in 2010. And thirdly, look at its alliance with Russia, which now includes significant Russian forces in the country and a certain Russian protection. Uh, finally, you have Russia involved in this thing. It also has the goal of overthrowing the American-led collective security system. It's an anti-status quo country, but it has different goals than that of Iran. It doesn't want to run the region. It doesn't have the resources or the ideology to do that, but it does think it can push the region back into the 19th century. So that is the threat that we're all up against. All of the status quo countries, and in various ways they include Israel, the Arab states, Turkey, the United States, and the Europeans don't want to see Iran continue its march. I generally do agree with Ambassador Jeffrey and with Asaf. I just want to stress a few points. Like Assad said it to all of us, him or he burns the country and he has done so. Uh, that's not ha not changing. This is like his mentality from the beginning. Uh, he doesn't care. He will burn the, the whole country and he has done so to stay in power. So there is no compromise with Assad. Iran is there to stay for a very long time. Iran has been involved in Syria for over 40 years. Iran has a strategic dominance over Syria, empowering the SDF and the local tribal communities in eastern Syria, whether all the way down Raqqa to Deir Zor and beyond, and even the Druze, who are not happy with Assad, by the way, and they are looking for support from outside, from the outside world, uh, we can help to push uh, and change the dynamics, the status quo on the ground for the benefit of American interests in the region and in Syria. Okay. This idea of a land bridge where Iran is able to move weapons from Iran through Iraq, through Syria, to its proxy Hezbollah in Lebanon, was that a, a key moment? And when, when does that begin? And when does Israel decide Israel has to interdicted in Syria. Let's look at the, at the general uh, design. Iran is running a long campaign, paraphrasing uh, Kennedy's words, a long twilight struggle. It's under the threshold of escalation to war. It is cultivating local groups. It empowers them militarily, economically, and politically. And it allows them to promote both their own local goals uh, and its strategic, the Iranian uh, goals. So we're watching a kind of slow-burning, slow-moving war, undeclared and not between states. However, it includes all the components of a classic uh, war, only in slow motion and in a non-Iranian cloak. So you see command and control, you see intelligence, you see logistics, you see training, arming, deployment and employment. So. For Iran, it's a, good, it's a good business, it's a good beneficial strategy, very cost-effective. Now, Israel doesn't take, all, doesn't take on all the components in the Iranian strategy because our tools uh, for competition 
on influence, on political influence, are quite dull and few. However, we uh, go against the, the military and tangible part. The land bridge is actually a logistical uh, route allowing uh, to feed and supply foreign militias and Iranian forces in Syria to supply, to provide, and to arm them. And, and uh, when it goes from the land bridge to, towards uh, the front or the frontier, you see operational deployment as part of this proxy system. And their job is to harass, to attract, to uh, divert, to deter Iran's enemies. And, and like uh, uh, an Iranian sword wielded uh, by others and a war uh, fought by other people's uh, hands on other people's lands. And, and so Israel is actually addressing or trying to confront the Iranian uh, campaign systemically, like the response is more or less compatible to the structure of the problem with various uh, means and ways, clandestine, covert, overt, military and, and uh, diplomatic. How do you measure success? You know, as you say, look, there is no Iranian naval bases in Syria. There's no missile bases in Syria. And uh, it seems that it's the, the presence in Western Syria has, they, they've also been deterred. Are these metrics of success? Are there other metrics? Because you know the other side is, well, you can't fully expel Iran from Syria, and therefore this cannot win. So uh, first success is that we didn't get to war. Second success is that we rolled back and postponed, derailed uh, in, in many dimensions, Iran's design to uh, what it meant to have up front at that time. Since this is a long, longer campaign and it's uh, on the, in, the, in the twilight, you don't measure it for final victory. This is not a war that you win with a final victory. Uh, but, but you do delay, disrupt, and undermine the enemy's designs. And you uh, impose cost and they need to recalculate. Like in the nuclear issue, you can't ask about every operation. Yes, but do we have final victory? No, that's not the kind of struggle. It's, it's, it's a contest of will, uh, and it's uh, fought over time into its uh, second or third decade now, and it will be tested uh, retroactively. Until now, we have no war, we have no... A robust Iranian presence in Syria, and uh, the cost of retribution has been uh, low. So for Israel, it's also a beneficial, cost-effective campaign. Jim, if you had to give any advice to Israel on, on its gray zone, is there anything you would say? And can you get Iran out of Syria? Does Russia have any interest in driving a wedge? Can you get them out? Is, it, is, is diplomacy a mirage? Asaf hit the nail on the head when he said, and anybody I talked to, Israel, Saudi Arabia, the EU would say the same thing. We don't have all the tools needed to combat this gray zone war of Iran. We just have some of the tools and we apply them. That's the problem with all of the actors. Nobody has, except the United States, through, by, and with its partners, has all of the tools to try to do anything other than maintain a stalemate, because that's what Israel is doing. It is maintaining a stalemate with the Iranian strategic weapon systems in Syria and the uh, logistics bridge. Turkey is maintaining a stalemate along the northern border of Syria. 
the Arab community is maintaining a stalemate between its distaste for Assad and fear of Iran on the one hand and concern that they're punishing an Arab population on the other. The Europeans are being driven by typically human rights and international law concerns, such as uh, war crimes and the use of chemical weapons, but uh, they also realize that there's a strategic issue here as well. So everybody's focused on their one specific near-term concern, but nobody knows how to move beyond a stalemate because that would take a strategic effort to do three or four different things, which is what our lowest common denominator was in the late Trump administration. First of all, Iran out of Syria. That was our official position, but it's kind of like Pompeo's 12 points with Iran. It was an opening position. What we mainly said was Iran's strategic weapon systems are out of Syria and they can't come back under international control and with threat of military force if they do. That is possible because that doesn't require either Assad or Iran to sever the critical relationship between the two countries. It requires uh, Assad to recognize that his country cannot be used as a battlefield between two other countries, Iran and Israel, or Iran and whoever else they want to fire their missiles at. They're not discriminating. And that would require Assad's other patron, Russia, to realize that they are being sucked into something they didn't expect, which is Iran's regional strategic agenda. That is possible, but not easy, because in the short run, Russia, Assad, and Iran are allies. They're allies because uh, the rest of the Middle East, however feckless it is in acting against it, does not want them particularly to succeed, and most of the Syrian people do not want them to succeed. Twelve million of them have fled Assad either as refugees, six million roughly, or internally displaced people, another six million. So that's their problem. So they have their problems as well. And this has become a large-scale stalemate. The only way you can move beyond the stalemate is for an American-led program that takes all of the various actions from banning these guys from the Arab League to the sanctions we in the EU put on them to the military presences of the United States, Israel, and Turkey, the opposition, including opposition forces, the SDF Kurds in the Northeast, and put them all together in a team. That's what we tried to do. It's extremely difficult because many members of the team don't like each other. Two of them, Turkey and the SDF, fight each other. Just for our listeners, SDF is largely the Kurdish-led force more in, in eastern Syria, right? Yeah. Uh, think of the Israeli-Turkish relationship. And so uh, the... The upshot of that was a policy that put the other side under a great deal of pressure, uh, which Putin, in a meeting uh, with Mike Pompeo and me and, uh, in 2019, on Putin's invitation to hear about an alternative way to resolve this, uh, admitted, uh, but also uh, was never quite enough pressure to convince the key variable actor, which is Russia, to... Uh, press Assad seriously to do something about the Iranians and do something about his own treatment of the Syrian people. Those are the two key conditions. If Russia wants Iran out, why doesn't Russia try to force this? Russia has to respect the realities on the ground 
and that includes the sovereignty of Syria and Assad as its leader. That is the card that they play all the times with us in the UN and everything else. They can't undercut it themselves. The second thing is, other than a few MP units, the Russians have no ground troops. It's all Air Force. Yeah, and it's only a small Air Force of crappy airplanes that works only because they have mastered the art of carpet bombing civilians. But but you're saying that but you're saying some fascinating things here that Assad is afraid that Iran would retaliate against it because it controls part of the Syrian army. Did I hear that correctly? Yes, and uh, but again, uh, it also is the way he knows his own military is not strong enough. He saw that from 2011 to 2015 to protect him from his own people, unless he changes his posture to his own people, which does not seem to be possible for Assad. I think that gray zone is a true description for the politics as well, not just for the operations. Because you're asking, does Russia and or, or Assad want Iran out? No, they want it in uh, with limits. So uh, Russia benefits from Iran, but doesn't want it to compete on some parts. Okay, so... Ola, you studied the, the Syrian-Iranian relationship. How do you see the gray zone conflict between Iran and Israel and Syria, and how effective is it? Iran's policy towards Syria is aimed at providing strategic depth for the Tehran regime. So it, since its inception in 1979, the Iranian regime um, has co-opted local Syrian Shia religious infrastructure and also while building its own on top of it in Syria. Um, they also, obviously, you all know, they have proxy actors from Lebanon, from Iraq, based mainly around the shrine of Sayyid Zainab on the outskirts of Damascus. The Iranian regime also has consolidated control over lovers uh, in various localities. Uh, and beyond religious uh, proselytization, these networks have provided education, healthcare, social services, among other things. And that has been happening throughout since 1979. You know, obviously it started uh, on a smaller scale and now it has grown tremendously today. 79 is the time of the Iranian revolution, right? Against the Shah, exactly. When the Shah was still in power and those clerks, clergies and, and, and uh, mullahs that were against him, they found refuge actually in Damascus. Hafiz al-Assad at that time welcomed them with an open arm. Did the, the Hafez al-Assad welcome the Iranians because of a religious kinship? Thank you for asking this question. So it was for his own benefit. What, did, what Hafez al-Assad did is he was trying to, he comes from the Alawite sect in Syria, which is a minority that was historically looked at as a, a group of heretics, you know, uh, by Sunni ulama in, the, in Syria. So they were not uh, looked at as part of Islam. What happened is, when some of these people migrated from Baghdad to Latakia and they survived for, for, for centuries there and they thrived and they became the minority, the Alawite minority in Syria that we know about. What happened when Hafez al-Assad uh, came into power, when he wanted to take over and become president through a military coup, he faced backlash from local, the local population in Syria from the Sunni majority. He's like, you're not a Muslim. The constitution says the president has to be a Muslim. So in order for him to kind of silence the backlash, he relied on the Shia clergy, such as um, Musa Sadr, for example, and others who gave him fatwas and legitimacy. And they said publicly, 
uh, Alawism or the Alawite sect is part of Shia Islam. Why they did that? Because they also wanted Hafiz Assad to help him in return because they were going through, you know, they were first preparing for toppling the Shah and then they needed an ally in the region. So there was that mutual beneficial relationship that started. So do you think that the Israeli attacks have deterred Iran from expanding its presence in Syria, even if Iran so far has not taken out its uh, strategic weapons? When it comes to what Israel is doing in Syria, in my opinion, it's helpful, but it's very limited. These attacks are not deterring Iran. They are just deterring and uh, threats here and there. And it, they're mostly happening on, alongside the borders with, with Israel. Uh, in my opinion, the Iranian involvement in Syria is not confined to the military realm. So therefore, there has to be a holistic approach to deal with the Iranian presence in Syria. There needs to be uh, support from the United States and our allies in the West to together work on a holistic approach to get Iran out of Syria. And that would mean uh, looking at not just the military realm, because, as I said, Iran, Iran is involved in the social sector, in the economic sector, in the political sector, in the military sector, and so forth. Uh, so there has to be a lot of work to be done. Just say one more thing, Ula, about the role of the Shia proxy forces, how much they are part of this conflict in Syria, because we haven't really discussed them. The, the threat that's going to come, or it's coming actually, from the, the presence of the foreign Shia militias backed by Iran, is the fact that the Assad regime is giving citizenship, serious citizenship to them as an incentive for them to stay and help him fight his war. So let's just figure out uh, here as a concluding question is, is where does it go from here? Is there a way out of this ongoing conflict between Israel and Iran and Syria? It is interesting. Sometimes you've had, let's say, U.S.-Israel friction over the Palestinian issue, of course, over the issue of of the nuclear question dealing with Iran, even if the countries are united, then no one wants Iran to have a nuclear weapon. But it's sometimes, you know, this podcast tries to look at the U.S. as a relationship. Sometimes the news is what doesn't happen. And there doesn't seem to be outward friction between the U.S. and Israel over the gray zone campaign. Um, so maybe, Jim, I'll start with you. Where do you see the trajectory here? And how will this impact U.S.-Israel relations? The trajectory can go in three directions. First, all of the major players can continue this more or less holistic policy that we tried to put in place in the late Trump administration to make the whole better than the sum of the parts. That is a minimum freezes the conflict. So it can go two other ways. One way is uh, if we can continue to maintain unity and increase the pressure, at some point, Russia might say, uh, as Putin came close to saying to Pompeo and me in Sochi, what is the bottom line that you guys can tolerate in Syria? What do you need me to do? He came close to that, but didn't get there, partially because we hadn't put enough pressure on him, partially because I think this was at the end of an administration. He hoped for a new administration. The third uh, possibility, and this is the one I'm so worried about, is that uh, the United States will not play that role that we tried to play in the late um, 
Obama period with Kerry, not particularly successfully. And I think we, we were able to do more successfully uh, after 2018 in the Trump administration of pulling everybody together and exerting holistic pressure on Russia, Assad, and the Iranians to try to get them to do that. If the United States walks away from that in Syria, Russia and Iran and Assad will win, and we will be facing a different Middle East. Ola, how do you, when you say the way out is a holistic approach, can you just explain that a little more? If there's going to be a deal with Iran, another one, they have to consider, the U.S. administration has to consider Iranian activities in, in Syria, what they're doing, how they're supporting the Assad regime, how can we limit them? You know, their involvement in Syria is not going to go anywhere. It's not going to stop unless the U.S. stops it. And the U.S. can do that. And the negotiations, uh, the JCPOA and so forth, they can put conditions uh, in the deal if they want to have a deal uh, along these lines to limit their presence in Syria. Is this basically going to be, you know, because I, I think to Jim's point, I don't think Iran is going to negotiate you know, it's its footprint in the region. So whatever isn't done on the ground to compete with Iran, and it's not just military, it's economics, it's 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 a it's a variety of, of dimensions of cooperation and the fact that Arabs and Israelis are now closer than they used to be, uh, because of the Gulf and the like, you wonder if that competition Yeah, let me tell you, every time Israel hits inside Syria, the Syrians are inside. I'm in touch with a lot of people they are sending me messages. Some of them are private. Some of them are public. They're like, yes, please help us. Israel, please help us. What do they mean by that? By toppling Assad, by getting rid of Iran and Hezbollah, Syrians inside are asking for help from Israel and from the rest of the world because they see that Israel is doing some stuff to limit the Iranian and, and militias and the IRGC there and Hezbollah. They see that's happening. They appreciated it, appreciate it every time there is a strike. Uh, however, they need more. But I, as I said, the holistic approach, there has to be different programs, for example, to count, counter terrorism programs. So the U.S. can do that. The U.S. can do economic programs and empower the local tribes in, in eastern Syria. And there is Zor, for example, who are struggling to survive and the IRGC comes in and offers money and services and so forth the US can do that instead of letting you know letting them go to the to the Iranian side and why don't we win them on our side all right to Asaf, what is the realm of the possible for Israel we need to be humble uh, remembering our size despite the great publicity when an 80 million people nation rich with resources is resolved to undertake a national priority project, like top priority, it is uh, difficult for uh, a small state like us, uh, even a strong one or powerful, to prevent it with the reasonable cost. So we understand we're talking about, Jim said, living with it. We live with our sword with it. We understand it's not ours to solve, but it's ours to manage and ours to mitigate, and ours to try and mobilize as many partners as we can into it. Uh, if we can dissuade Iran, 
to say, listen, this is going to cost you so much, you need to reconsider this and this and that. Now, Ula said no deterrence. I, I beg to differ. I think they're stepping back. They're relying on militias more than on Iranians. They're uh, sending less Iranians. They're going to uh, Al-Bukamal and, and Diazor and, uh, and not uh, to our uh, frontier. And think about uh, deterrence is much about uh, a mind game. After suffering the loss of Soleimani and the loss of, of uh, Fahrizadeh, and uh, uh, attacks in Natanz, a, a high security installation, a national symbol. Do we think that it fills them with, with confidence? I think not. Obviously, what's happening in Syria, what has been happening in Syria for the past 10 years is a genocide. It's not going to be acknowledged by the international community, but that does not matter. It's a genocide. And the ethnic cleansing that has been, you know, that Assad has been doing is is to benefit him in the long term for demographic change. Even if Iran says, okay, we're going to not be here officially, they are there and their, their elements are there and their, the Shia foreign fighters are, are becoming Syrian citizens and the demographic change is going to be a huge problem for the region. So do you see what I'm looking at? I'm looking at decades from today, not just immediate policy change and any immediate policy change towards Iran it's not going to take it's not going to happen or result in anything an immediate change it's, it's we have to look also at a at the long term as they do they are doing that we should also have a vision to counter and match what our interests there okay on that happy note i want to thank all of you for taking the time out and really appreciate this really wide-ranging discussion. Very grateful to, to three great perspectives. So I think what we heard from our three guests is that they all identified the Iranian presence in Syria as ensuring that bloodshed there will continue. Everyone saw Iran as part of the problem, if not even the most important problem. They all agreed on the problem, but they all were somewhat pessimistic that Iran, left to its own devices, would get out of Syria. I think I was struck by something Jim Jeffrey said about how Assad really does want them out. The president of Syria would like Iran out, and he understands that this it could be bring more peace to his country. And yet at the end of the day, He's afraid of Iranian retaliation. He's afraid that his own military is really, in some ways, controlled by Iran. And therefore, if he takes that ultimate step by asking them to leave, his whole regime could unravel. And I think that tells you a lot, that on one hand, Moscow doesn't want Iran there, and Syria doesn't want Iran there. But ultimately, no one believes that they can push Iran out. And hence, this limbo period of threading this needle of a gray zone, keeping things under the threshold of war, continues. And so I emerge with this session that people think the gray zone strategy is the best you can make of a bad situation, but you are talking about managing a conflict more than you are about resolving it. 
So I want to thank all of you, Asaf Orion, Jim Jeffrey, Aula Al-Rafai, for joining us today and for really shedding light on a fascinating and tragic conflict in, in a corner of the Middle East. I want to thank all of our listeners from all over the world. I hope you join us for all of Season 3. Please go to your favorite podcast app to rate, review, and subscribe to Decision Points. And tell your friends. I also recently published a book co-authored with Ambassador Dennis Ross called Be Strong and of Good Courage, How Israel's Most Important Leaders Shaped Its Destiny. I want to thank all of those who made this podcast possible. Our coordinator, Sheridan Cole, and our researcher, Alex Harris. I also want to thank Jeff Rubin, Scott Rogers, and Carolina Krauskopf of the Washington Institute. And finally, Richard Myron and Lindsay Riley, our production team at Earshot Strategies. Thank you all. <laughs>